You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Hi, everyone. Um, As Ken said, we're in John chapter 16, starting at verse 16. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I mean when I said, in a little while, you will see me no more? And then after a little while, you will see me. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time to grieve. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I've come from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you are not even, you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied? A time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone for my father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Thanks, Christina. Uh, If you're new today and you haven't met me before, my name's Aaron. Uh, I'm uh, one of the pastors here at DPC. Uh, And if you are new here, I'd really love to meet you after church. Uh, If you're new, it's maybe worth you knowing uh, that I have a vision impairment. Uh, So if I walk into you and kind of give you a hip and shoulder after church, it's probably an accident. Uh, I'd really appreciate it. If you want to come up and say hi, if you're bold enough to do that, I'd love to meet you and uh, get to know you a little bit after church. Uh, There's an outline of my sermon. I think Ken mentioned that on the welcome card. It'd be great to have John 16 open. Uh, But Let's pray and ask for God's help. Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this wonderful opportunity that we have uh, to look at your word together. Uh, Please help me to speak your word faithfully and clearly. 
Uh, Please take up your word by the power of your spirit uh, to make it clear in our hearts and minds and real and alive in such a way that changes us. Uh, For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, You guys were just chatting about uh, times in your life where you felt both happy and sad at the same time. Uh, So I'm going to ask a similar sort of question. Why is life such a messy mix of joy and grief? A messy mix of joy and grief. Uh, Certainly the small group I was in in the break, we can certainly all relate to this. Uh, Sometimes uh, it's a moment of fleeting joy that it's kind of swallowed up by grief. I'm sure you've experienced this. I experienced it just last Boxing Day. Uh, We'd had a a lovely family lunch with Gabby's side of the family. I was feeling content and satisfied, uh, sitting there with my brother-in-law, watching the Boxing Day test. Uh, It was a really uh, wonderful moment. I felt joy. And and then out of nowhere, I get a call from someone from CMS to tell us that our dear friends, Matt and Kate and their kids, had been in a horrific car accident. We really didn't even know at that point, what the extent of the injuries would be. And, of course, that's unfolded since. But the point is, it was a moment of joy that was all too fleeting, swallowed up by a moment of grief. Sometimes it's like the joy and grief are both together at the same time. I experienced this to some extent on my wedding day, Uh, Not because I was, you know, grief-stricken about marrying Gabby. Uh, That was a joyful thing. That was the joy dimension, the delight dimension. Uh, And yet, just two or three weeks before that, I'd been in Melbourne Private Hospital, uh, just over here in Parkville, uh, saying, uh, really having my last conversation with my grandma, who I really loved. Uh, She'd been sick all of that year. We got married at the end of November. Uh, She'd really been trying to hang on to make it to our wedding. And she said to me, Aaron, I just don't think I'm going to make it. I've got to say our goodbyes. And so our wedding day was a wonderful occasion of joy, but there was, it was kind of tainted with grief because someone who I dearly loved and wanted to be there just couldn't be there. Joy kind of tinged with grief. And other times it's the other way around, isn't it? We have grief uh, that uh, kind of leads into joy. Uh, A time that stuck out in my life in this instance was uh, when I was in year 12. I experienced the first kind of six to seven months of year 12 for me were just pretty much rubbish (laughs) in the sense that I was, it was a really dark time. I was incredibly depressed and discouraged, fairly intense anxiety, uh, all kind of panic attack type style anxiety. And I remember one day, about six or seven months into year 12, I was sitting on the bus going into town in Bendigo where I was uh, living and kind of going to school at that time. And it was like just a a little light came on. Imagine a a candle being lit or something like that. It it wasn't that everything straight away was fixed, but it was a moment uh, that gave me hope that life was worth living. A, A little glimmer of joy beyond the grief that I'd been experiencing. Why is life like this, such a messy mix of joy and grief? Well, I think the answer of today's passage from John's Gospel in extra short terms is that we don't see Jesus. That's why life is like this. Or a longer summary is life is a messy mix of both joy and grief uh, now because we don't see Jesus now. But later we will see Jesus 
and so we'll be filled with joy without grief forever. Life now is a messy mix of joy and grief because we don't see Jesus now, but later we will see Jesus, and so we'll be filled. Those of us who believe in Jesus and love Jesus and have given our lives to him will be filled with joy without grief forever. So don't take my word for it. That's my summary of the passage, but I'm going to kind of look through the passage. You can see if you think that that's what this passage is about. Is it what God is telling us? Take a look first in uh, verses 16 to 18, uh, where Jesus says, uh, soon his disciples won't see him, but later they will see him again. Remember, in this part of John's Gospel, uh, Jesus knows that he's going to die soon. He's having his last meal in the upstairs room of a house in Jerusalem, a Passover meal with his disciples. He's preparing them for the occasion, as Alicia's told us, when they need the tissues. They're going to be grief-stricken and saying goodbye to Jesus. And so in verse 16, Jesus says, In a little while you will see me no more, uh, but then after a little while you will see me. Jesus knows that very soon, remember Judas has left the Passover meal. Jesus knows that really soon he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be crucified, he'll be buried in the ground and his disciples will not see him. And yet, after a little while, he also knows that on the third day he's going to come back to life and appear to his disciples and they will see him again. Soon, Jesus' disciples won't see him, but later they will see him. Jesus is pretty clear. And now, of course, Jesus' disciples at this point don't really have a concept. Like they've come to believe that Jesus is God's Messiah, God's chosen and promised king, the one sent from heaven to earth to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven with perfect joy and peace and blessing. They've come to believe that Jesus is God's Messiah, And they don't really have a concept of God's Messiah just up and leaving his people, dying on a cross. So they're really confused. If you look in verses 17 and 18, uh, what does he he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, uh, what does he he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Maybe you can see, kind of imagine Jesus' disciples sitting around the Passover meal table, kind of whispering to one another, what on earth is he talking about? Exchanging puzzled looks. There's a lot of confusion. But one thing is clear from verses 16 to 18. Jesus is saying, soon his disciples won't see him. In a little while, they won't see him. Uh, But then a little while after that, they will see him. And then in verses 19 to 22, Jesus builds on that by saying, soon his disciples will be full of grief. And later, they will be full of joy. Take a look in verse 19. Uh, John picks it up here. He says, Jesus saw that his disciples uh, uh, wanted to ask him about this. And so he said to them, are you asking one another uh, what I meant when I said in a little while, uh, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Jesus' disciples must have been like, yeah, that's kind of what we're asking one another. Perhaps Jesus overheard it or he had some special knowledge. We don't really know. The point is he had his finger on the pulse. He knew his disciples were confused about this. And so in verse 20, he says, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. 
you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. So I hope you can see the connections between verses 16 to 18 and verses 19 to 22. Soon Jesus' disciples will be full of grief. Why will they be full of grief? Because they won't see Jesus anymore. Jesus who they love, who they've accepted, who they've given their lives to. They will be full of grief. And yet at exactly the same time, what, what emotion will the world be experiencing? They'll be rejoicing. Because they didn't love Jesus. We've heard in recent weeks, the world by and large has hated Jesus. They didn't accept Jesus. They, they by and large have rejected Jesus. I said they're rejoicing because they think they've finally got rid of Jesus. We've seen the last of him. The world is rejoicing. You see the contrast. For those in the world who've rejected Jesus, to get rid of him is a cause for joy. But for those who've accepted Jesus, his disciples, to no longer see him is to be full of grief. But notice the end of verse 20. Jesus assures his disciples that as painful as their grief will be, it will not last forever. Their grief will turn to joy. Literally, their grief will become joy or give birth to joy, which makes a little bit more sense about that uh, illustration about childbirth in verse 21. Jesus is kind of thinking, oh, what's the situation where grief kind of gives birth to joy? Childbirth. Now, I don't know. I don't know much about childbirth. I'm not pretending to be an expert. I was uh, at three births, uh, but I definitely know much, I don't know much about the pain of childbirth, aside from Gabby squeezing my hand. But verse 21, Jesus uses this illustration. A woman giving birth uh, to a child has pain because her time has come. Now, it's a little bit confusing in our Bibles. The word pain there is actually the same as the word grief. It might have helped if they translated it in the same way. The word grief in verse 20, not uh, that Jesus is saying that every woman is kind of full of lament and sadness when they're having a child, uh, but every woman who is in the pains of childbirth really is hurting. It's the hour of their suffering, uh, the hour of their grief. You might remember that throughout John's Gospel, uh, there's been a lot of talk about Jesus' hour. Jesus' hour had come or Jesus' hour hadn't come. It comes up again and again in John's Gospel. Uh, Jesus' hour is the appointed time of his suffering and death, the time of his grief. Uh, so if you look back in John chapter 7, just to give a couple of the examples, uh, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem can't lay a hand on Jesus, even though they want to seize him and kill him because the hour of his suffering and death hasn't come. Uh, but in John 13, Judas is able to betray Jesus because Jesus knows that the hour of his suffering and death has come. Uh, so watch Jesus' point in verse 20 or verse 21 with this illustration. His point is that, that even though a, a pregnant woman is experiencing real uh, and deep suffering and pain and grief uh, as she labours away to give birth to her child, when she finally sees the child, when the child finally comes into the world, she is full of joy. Her grief turns to joy because she's seen the one that she loves, the one that she's longed to see for so long. 
That's Jesus' point. And so he says in verse 22, so also with you. Oh, sorry, let me read the rest of that verse where Jesus says, but when her baby is born, she forgets her anguish because of her joy that her child is born into the world. And now, if you have actually experienced the pain and grief of childbirth, you might feel like Jesus is minimising the suffering and labour that goes into it. She just forgets about her anguish, and you might think, well, I didn't forget about it, right? However, I think in general what Jesus is saying is true. When a woman who's been labouring in childbirth, experiencing deep pain and anguish and suffering, finally sees her child, uh, the joy she experiences is, generally speaking, so overwhelming that it's like she can't even remember the pain she was in. And Jesus is saying that's what it'll be like for his disciples when they finally see him again. Their grief will turn to joy in a moment. And the joy will be so overwhelming, so all-consuming, that it'll be like they never suffered at all. In John's Gospel, we've been counting down to the hour of Jesus' suffering and death. And it's right here on the doorstep. It's about to happen. And when that happens, Jesus' disciples will be full of grief. But that grief is not God's last word. It will not last forever. Their grief will turn to joy when they see Jesus again, the one that they love. Indeed, it will give them a joy. Uh, Jesus says that no one can take away. Notice verse 22. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. So even in the midst of pain and suffering and troubles and anguish in this world, Jesus says uh, that he offers his disciples a joy because he conquered death, he was raised from the dead, he offers a joy that no one can take away. And in verses 23 to 33, he kind of teaches his disciples about the different aspects of this joy uh, that they can have, that we can have, because they saw him again raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection flips everything on its head. And so those who are in grief can experience this joy that no one can take away. First, we can experience this joy. Take a look in verses 23 and 24. Uh, Because we can be assured that our prayers will always be answered by God the Father. Notice verse 23. Jesus says, in that day. That's the day. uh, Not not a specific 24-hour day, but the, the era, the period of time. After Jesus is raised from the dead and he returns to his Father and he pours out his Spirit. Jesus is saying, in that day, you will no longer ask me for anything, which is a really big change, right? During Jesus' earthly ministry, if his disciples had a question like they just had a few verses before this, what did they do? They asked Jesus about it. If the disciples had a need of any kind, what did they do? They asked Jesus about it. And now Jesus says, when I leave you and ascend to my Father and pour out my Spirit, you're not going to do that anymore. You're going to be asking the Father for things. 
Now, is that good news? Is is the Father uh, kind of got a heart that he wants to hear our prayers and answer our prayers? Well, Jesus addresses that. He says, very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask for in my name. Until now, you haven't asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. So Jesus says uh, his Father in heaven uh, will give us whatever we ask for in his name. Which maybe for some of us here is actually a little bit hard to hear. I mean, it's kind of a nice promise, but maybe you're someone like me who has passionately asked for something that you really think you need, you really want, and you haven't got it. You've even prayed for it in Jesus' name. So what does it mean? Like, what is this promise? If I suspect uh, many of us here who are Christians have prayed these sort of prayers and it seems that God the Father hasn't answered them. What do we do with the promise? I think first we've got to understand exactly what it means to ask for things in Jesus' name. It's not kind of like, I mean, sometimes I'll be praying with other Christians and it's like they think in Jesus' name is a magic code word to tag on the end of any prayer and it just kind of unlocks automatically all the blessings of heaven. That's not what it means to pray in Jesus' name. In the Bible, God's name, Jesus' name, uh, represents the full glory of who he is, the wonder and beauty and majesty of who God is. Uh, You can read an example of that in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where God proclaims his name to Moses. And it's an incredible description of God's glorious character, of who he is and how he acts towards his people. Uh, So to pray uh, to uh, God the Father in Jesus' name is to humbly acknowledge two things. First, uh, it's to humbly acknowledge that you can only come into the presence of God as your heavenly Father uh, because of the wonderful glory of who Jesus is. What's the glory of who Jesus is uh, is in John's Gospel? It's Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's part of what John has to tell us about the glory of who Jesus is. He is the one who can wash us clean of his sin, our sins and make us fit to come into the presence of God the Father. So to pray to God the Father in Jesus' name is first and foremost to know to come to God the Father saying, Father, you know that I can only come to you because I humbly cling to the blood of the Lord Jesus that was shed on the cross for my sins. Uh, Jesus, I believe, is the Lamb of God who has taken away my sins. That's what it means, first and foremost, to pray to God the Father in Jesus' name. Uh, And second, it means uh, to pray for whatever you want in such a way, as far as you can tell, that it is in line uh, with the glorious promises and character of Jesus in the Bible. It's a little bit confusing, but if God's name uh, represents his character, then to pray to him in his name uh, is to pray in a way that is in line with who he is, in line with his character. Uh, So, for example, if I was to pray, uh, Dear Heavenly Father, uh, in Jesus' name, please give me a private jet. Uh, Now, I know that's a flippant example, but maybe it's useful for this. Please give me a private jet. Uh, My Heavenly Father is not bound to give me that. Why? Well, first, because he never promised to give all his children a private jet. Second, because he probably knows that I'm asking for that for the wrong reasons. 
Might not because I'm in line with the generous character of my father, but because I'm a little bit greedy and I want a little bit more comfort. So what is the promise here? The promise is that if you come to God the Father through Jesus' finished work on the cross, then he will always hear your prayers and answer your prayers and he will give you whatever you ask for as long as he's convinced that it's for your good and for his glory. I think that's the promise. He will always hear your prayers and answer your prayers and give you whatever you might need as long as he's convinced that it's for your good and his glory. Which is still a wonderful promise. I'm a dad to three kids, Ada, Charlie and Felix. I love my kids. I'm far from a perfect dad. I have my own struggles with, uh, you know, impatience and frustration and irritation and selfishness and all of that. I'm far from perfect. Uh, I'm also a dad who has limited resources, Uh, you know, material resources, uh, emotional resources, Uh, and limited power and influence. And yet, if one of my kids comes to me with a genuine need and I'm convinced that uh, to meet that need would be for their good, then I will do everything I can to meet that need. That's me as a kind of imperfect and messed up dad with limited power and resources. How much more incredible is this promise for our Heavenly Father? He's the one who has limitless power. If he wants to do something, he will do it. He's got limitless resources. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, says the psalmist. He loves us. He will give you whatever you need as long as he's convinced that it's for your good and for his glory. It's a great promise and it's a promise that no one can take away. It doesn't matter how bad life is, how much you suffer for the sake of Jesus, no one can take this promise away, so no one can take the joy that comes from this promise. That's the first and the the longest one. The second uh, kind of thing, a reason why we can have this joy that uh, no one can take away is in verse 25. Take a look in, in verse 25. Sorry, i just got to find my notes. Yeah, verse 25, Jesus says, Though I have been speaking figuratively, which is to say Jesus has been speaking in a way that his disciples find a little bit obscure, a bit cryptic. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming, Jesus says, when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will tell you plainly about my father. So at this point, Jesus' disciples have a pretty confused knowledge of God the Father. There's stuff that is a bit obscure and cryptic. They haven't joined the dots on. Jesus is saying it won't always be like that. A time is coming when I will speak to you plainly about my Father. That time is when Jesus leaves them. He ascends to the Father. He pours out his spirit. And the promise that Jesus gave in verses 12 and 13 last week is fulfilled. Jesus said, I have much more to say to you now, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. 
And so the promise here uh, is that when Jesus ascends to his Father and pours out his Spirit uh, and the apostles uh, will be guided by the Spirit into all truth, where they had a distorted knowledge of God, it will become clear. Where there was confusion, uh, it'll be accurate and true. And this is a wonderful assurance for us. What does it mean? It means that when we read the Spirit-inspired and empowered words of the apostles in the Bible, we can be sure that we're actually getting a clear picture of God, a clear picture of the God that we're praying to, God the Father, God the Father who knows us better than we know ourselves. By knowing that you've got a clear picture of the God who knows you and loves you, is something that can give you joy, joy that no one can take away. In particular, because you know that God the Father loves you. If you take a look at verses 26 and uh, 26 to 28, he really does love you. Verse 26, Jesus says, In that day again, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that uh, I'll ask the Father on your behalf, no, uh, the Father himself loves you uh, because you have loved me uh, and I have believed, uh, and sorry, and have believed that I came from God. I've really loved thinking about this verse this week, uh, honestly. Um, I mean, the whole passage, but this verse in particular. I was just really struck. Like, Jesus has just been saying, hey, you can ask, for things, ask the Father things, for, for things in my name. Uh, he doesn't want his disciples to get the impression that uh, they can kind of ask him for things and then he'll go up the passage and ask the grumpy God the Father for stuff. You know, God the Father uh, wants to keep them at arm's length. Uh, you know, he's reluctantly accepting them into the family, but he doesn't really love them, certainly doesn't like them. Jesus is saying, no, that's not the case at all. Right, through my work on the cross, uh, you are made so fit for my Father's presence that he loves you. He delights in you. Yes, you have to come to him through my work on the cross, believing in me, but you can bowl right into his presence. He's eager to hear from you. you I don't have to ask him for stuff on your behalf. You ask him directly in my name. And all that direct access to God the Father is because of Jesus' kind of finished work that he summarises in verse 28. If you look in verse 28, Jesus says, I came from the Father. So Jesus came from the uh, the presence of his Father, God the Father in heaven, where he was loved and accepted and rejoiced in. And then he came into the presence of the world. Jesus says, I entered the world. Of course, in the world, Jesus wasn't loved, he was hated, he wasn't accepted, he was rejected, Uh, he wasn't rejoiced in, except for what we heard earlier. They rejoiced to get rid of him. Uh, People rejoiced to lift him up on a cross, thinking that they'd got rid of him. Uh, But they didn't realise that in lifting Jesus up on the cross, uh, they were actually just kind of giving a helping hand back to his father where he was going to be lifted all the way up back to his father in heaven. So Jesus says, now I am leaving the world and going back to the father. What's the promise here that gives us a joy that no one can take away? The promise is that if you believe that Jesus is God's son who came from the father into the world, who was rejected and hated and ultimately crucified by the world, 
and then was lifted up to his father again through his resurrection and his ascension. If you're someone who believes that, God the Father loves you, Jesus says. He really loves you. And so you can be sure that when you bring your prayers to him and you ask for things in Jesus' name, his heart towards you is full of delight and love. And finally, in verses 29 to 33, uh, Jesus says we can have this joy that no one can take away because we will share in his peace and his victory even in the midst of all our troubles and failures. Uh, if you take a look in verses 29 and 30, Jesus' disciples say to him, well, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things uh, and that you don't even uh, need uh, to, sorry, excuse me, uh, need to have anyone ask you a question. This makes us believe uh, that you came from God. Now, on the surface, you could read this and think, well, that's a kind of spiritually climactic moment, right? Jesus' disciples making bold declarations of faith in him and commitment to him. And yet, Jesus doesn't seem that impressed. He kind of sees right through it. He thinks you guys are way too proud and self-confident. You get a little bit of it depending on what tone you read the disciples' words, but you could read it like this. Now we see, now we know, now we believe. And frankly, Jesus, the only reason we didn't get it sooner was because you kept speaking in riddles all the time. I think that's how Jesus takes it. And so he kind of puts them back in their box a little bit in verses 31 32. Notice verse 31, do you now believe? A time is coming. In fact, it has come uh, when you will all be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. You see, Jesus is saying, I appreciate your bold declarations of commitment to me, saying you're going to stick by me forever now, now you believe, now you see who I am. But let me tell you, at the first sign of real trouble, you're all going to desert me. You're all going to fail, you're all going to let me down. Why does Jesus tell his disciples that? You just want to kind of bring them down to size? Well, I don't think so. Notice verse 33. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, with the times of trouble ahead, I think Jesus wants his disciples to be clear. Uh, where are they going to put their confidence? If they put them co their confidence in Jesus rather than in themselves, they will share in his peace, even in the midst of times of trouble. And they will share in his victory over the world, his overcoming of the world, despite all the times that they're going to fail here. Not just this upcoming time when they desert him, but all the times when they fail, just like us. But this is a promise that brings joy that no one can take away, sharing in Jesus' peace and victory uh, despite all our troubles and failures. See, if you're here today and you're a Christian... Uh, you get to share in all the blessings that Jesus has unpacked in verses 23 to 33. 
are the blessings that bring a joy that no one can take away. Uh, It's a joy that no one can take away because you notice that they're all connected to the relationship that you have with God the Father through the work of Jesus, his Son. And yet, we all know that despite all these, all the joy that can come from these blessings, we've still got to live our lives in this world. It's a messy mix of joy and grief, troubles, anguish, suffering. So what do we do when we read this passage? We're not in exactly the same place as Jesus' disciples, are we? When Jesus says to them, your grief will turn to joy because you will see me again, He's in particular thinking about them seeing him after his resurrection. But we're a few steps on than that. So we lift our eyes to the ultimate promise of Jesus. When our grief will turn to joy. When we will see Jesus again. Because Jesus has gone away to prepare a place for us. A place where we won't experience a messy mix of joy with grief. But joy without grief forever. Remember, Jesus said back in John 14, verse 3, uh, he said, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me uh, that you also may be where I am. You see, the promise for us is that after a little while, Jesus is going to come back. You say it doesn't feel like a little while. And Jesus says, it's just because you don't understand how glorious and inexpressible the joy is going to be. You'll be like the woman who's given birth to a child. You'll look back and you'll forget the anguish because you've finally seen the Lord Jesus who you love, who you've been separated from for all this time. And he'll take you to the place that he's prepared for you, a place that will be full of joy without grief forever. Without grief because there's no sickness and no suffering, and no sadness of any kind, no sin, no sadness of any kind. We won't even need tissues because the the, the Bible says Jesus will personally wipe every tear from our eyes and we'll never cry again. But this is the promise, you see. We experience a messy mix of joy and grief now because we don't see Jesus now. But later we will see Jesus, and at that point will experience inexpressible and glorious joy forever. Uh, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that your word is living and active and that it addresses the real uh, issues and pains and sufferings that we experience in life. I pray to today, Father, that by the power of your spirit, uh, you might have lifted our eyes uh, to see the great hope that we have beyond the griefs and troubles and pain of this world. And that you might have assured us that one day our grief will turn to joy. And that when we see Jesus again, the one we love, the one we've accepted, the one we've given our lives to, We look forward to that day, Father, and we pray that in the meantime uh, that you might remind us of these great promises that we have, these assurances of our relationship with you, our Heavenly Father, that give us a joy that no one can take away, even in the midst of all the life, uh, all life's troubles. Please assure us, Father, uh, and give us joy, even in the midst of our griefs. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.